Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity recorded in the pod at White City Place. I'm Ellie Stuhler. As snappy and problematically pithy as we seem to like our information these days, nonetheless, each year there are innumerable works of nonfiction that explore our world in great depth and thoughtfulness. These works can help us see the world in a new way by exploring previously murky arenas of culture or taking focus on themes that rarely get much breathing space. We have two such authors in the pod today, one whose books have charted the curious histories of color and fabric, the other whose forthcoming book compiles essays by women reporting on conflict in the Arab world. What they have in common, selling the value of the stories that had previously been pushed to the periphery and experiencing the painstaking, nerve-wracking process of getting them published. My name is Cassia Sinclair and I'm a writer and the author of The Secret Lives of Colour and The Golden Thread. Uh, my name is Zara Hankir. I'm a journalist and the editor of a forthcoming anthology entitled Our Women on the Ground, Essays by Arab Women Reporting from the Arab Worlds. Cassia is a writer based in London. Her first book, The Secret Lives of Colour, is a top 10 bestseller and was selected as Radio 4's Book of the Week in 2017 and has been translated into 12 languages. The Golden Thread, How Fabric Changed History, is out now in the UK and was a Radio 4 Book of the Week. Cassia is a regular contributor to NPR's Marketplace and is a columnist for Elle Decoration, as well as contributing to a number of other broadcasts and publications. Zahra was born in Belfast to Lebanese parents. She's a journalist whose writing focuses mainly on the intersection of politics, culture, and society in the Middle East. She's a past reporter and editor at Bloomberg News, first based in Dubai and then London. She's currently editing a book of original essays by Arab women who have been reporting on recent conflicts in the Arab world, both for major Western media outlets as well as local Arab newspapers and broadcasters. And it's kind of an exciting moment for you with the book because... I've just submitted the final version of the book, so I'm very excited because now I can sort of look forward to the publicity and the marketing phase and the publication in August. Which is so exciting. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I feel, I feel kind of involved in that because I got to see all the beautiful examples of the cover art yeah. and was there for all the the terrifying choices that you had to make uh, for the title of the book. Yes, and incidentally, the one of the only typos that I've spotted in the book uh, following submission two hours ago was that I forgot to put the period after Saint in your name <laughs> in the acknowledgement section. So, yes. That's oh, so exciting. Cassia. I'm in the acknowledgements. Uh, don't worry. I'm, uh, Americans love having the period after the Saint, but in, in Britain it doesn't matter. Uh, but could you start um, by talking about how that book uh, came about and um, why you thought it was really important um, to, you know, have this book published um, and, and by, by the particular voices that you wanted to showcase. Sure. So I am Arab myself. I'm Lebanese. I'm a journalist. Um, I covered the Arab world for many years before moving to London. And I'm quite obsessed with coverage of the Arab world. I've been following it closely um, for, I would say, at least 15, 20 years. And um, that reveals my age, maybe. <laughs> and um, I noticed, particularly during the Arab Spring, that there were a rising number of women who were 
uh, covering the region and that they hailed from the countries that they were reporting on. And I found that their voices tend to be incredibly authentic and to deliver um, a side to the story that I think isn't really predominant in international media coverage of the Arab world. And I just felt that their voices were in a way uh, missing or not amplified enough in the discourse on the Arab world uh, globally. So for me, I just kind of felt like it would be sort of a very feminist approach to amplifying the voices of the region that tend to be sidelined in in some ways. That's not to kind of to, to say that the discourse on the region is flawed. I just feel that it's incomplete when these women are not heard in the same way that other people covering the region, whether they're male or Western or Western male or Arab male, are heard. So, yeah, I just came up with the idea and thought it would be wonderful to have a book presenting those voices. And I, I guess I'm really curious about how you go about... Um, pitching that kind of idea to publishers you know do you have to have the essays um, tied down like the people who are going to write the essays in the book do you have to have that all sort of sorted before you approach a publisher and what was the um, the feedback that you were getting from publishers at the beginning did you find it you know did other people agree with your premise that this is these were stories that needed to be to be told and to be voices that need to be heard that's a great question um, well there are two questions there so the first is yes I did need to secure a couple of the essays um, from the women because I needed to present them in my proposal. So I'd written my introduction. So I had a list of uh, women um, and I just approached several of them, firstly to, to gauge their interest. And then uh, two of the women were very, very committed to the project and they uh, agreed when I when I suggested that they write uh, chapters ahead of time. Uh, Noor Malas and Aida Alami, they're both wonderful journalists. And uh, so, yes, I did have material that I was able to present to an agent and then to a publisher. And, and I, you know, I thank them profusely for that because I don't think I would have be able, been able to secure the project without that. And um, as far as how publishers responded, um, that's a really, really good question. We had a mix of responses. And I think generally the idea was that, yes, these voices need to be heard. But I think there was a problem with the idea of an anthology format, which tends to not be super popular with publishers. And it can be hit or miss. So anthologies tend to do really well or to just mm. not, not do great at all. So I think that was one of the, the biggest um hindrances and also some felt that there were too many contributors I had 19 on board and I really wanted to I wanted that large number of women because I wanted to to show how diverse the region is with the different types of stories that were being told from the different countries and the different conflicts and the different types of journalists and the different generations of women with different backgrounds so for me 19 well 19 is sort of a fair number it mm. sounds like a lot um, but some people would have preferred, let's say, some publishers would have preferred below 10, for example. So there were some hurdles there. I think one of the, one of the comments that stands out for me was someone said something like, um, you know, I feel like these stories might be repetitive in a way, which for me was, you know, that completely betrays the idea of the project, which is to show how diverse mm. the region is. So, um, but I, I take all that feedback really, I took it really sort of to heart and really well. And, and I feel like any feedback from any publisher or reader of your proposal mm. is useful and that it's important to to implement it in some way or, or to at least listen to it. 
Sorry, I feel like I'm completely dominating this conversation with my questions, but I'm just yeah, so fascinated I, by the process because <laughs> it's so different uh, to what I went through. But yeah, I mean, maybe could you tell me a little bit about how different it was for you? Okay, well, to that. quickly, and then I'm going to ask another question. Yeah, um, fair so uh, for uh, for nonfiction, you know, my my first book was about um, color. And I was lucky in, in that I already had kind of a proven track record because I'd been writing a column about colour for L Decoration for several years by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still hard. You know, I approached my first agent and, you know, sent the email nervously and then nudged them a week later and then nudged them again a couple of weeks after that. And they were like, no. <laughs> and I sort of lost uh, lost heart a little bit. And I was, I was also... Um, I had a full-time job, I was working at The Economist, and I sort of, you know, got knocked back a little bit, and exa- exactly as you shouldn't do, I sort of um, lost heart and was like, oh, well, maybe this is, just isn't for me. And then the column got really threatened, and um, I was like, actually, no, I, I really, this is something I'm really passionate about, I love writing about colour, I love researching it, so this is something I, this is worth um, going for. So I went back, found an agent, and actually... You know, the proposal was very easy. I already had a lot of material there. Mm -hmm. I was always doing, you know, always doing research into colour. And the proposal came together very, very naturally. And in my memory, although this is quite a few years ago now, so it's possible um, that I'm not remembering it exactly or kind of putting a a bit of a rosier hue on it. um, In my memory, it sort of happened very quickly between submitting the idea to publishers and um, getting a deal, which is not um, which is not typical. Um, some people wait months, and in fact, I've, I've now got another book on submission at the moment, um, which again, I, you know, I, I can't quite remember, but I think it's been out, you know, much longer than the first one was out, and I'm yeah. getting a bit nervous. Um, but how it's a terrifying time! It's terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, I'm. The question that I wanted to ask is obviously, you know, for me writing a book, the only, I mean, obviously you want your publisher and you want your editor to be really happy with it. But um, it's all in your voice. You know, your voice isn't going to change a lot, hopefully, (laughs) over the course of writing a book. Um, But for you, you're trying to create something which is, its very purpose is to show the diversity of um, voices and so you want to get lots of different voices in but you also want to kind of present the reader with something that is cohesive and works together as a as a package so how do you as an editor and as someone who's got this kind of very clear vision how do you go about editing an anthology so that it all hangs together and yet you're letting those individual voices shine that's a really good really really good question um and it's something I agonized over I think Initially, the way that I presented it to the to the writers was I always kind of gave them guidance, but it was their story. They all came with their own ideas. We had to have long conversations about what angle they were going to take. But essentially, I wanted them all to be telling one thing, one story. I wanted them all to be solid essays, right? Essay writing is very... Um, it's very difficult and it's very personal, but if you follow certain guidelines, if it's clear that this story is compelling and that it's being told in a compelling way and that the structure and the plot makes sense, then you're going to have a good essay. So my initial concern was that the essays all are standalone, excellent essays telling unique stories while preserving the 
the voice of the author and their own style without compromising that in any way. So I was in a way like the you know the, the, I was their guide in a way, and I was helping them when they needed me. But essentially, they were all really sure with with the stories they wanted to tell. Now, when I sort of looked at at the stories as a whole, I thought, okay, how are we going to be dividing these stories into sections and and sections that would make sense to the reader? Mm. So there. It's interesting because we hadn't thought of those themes prior to the submissions of the of the essay, so we didn't know what we'd be dealing with. Where we had nineteen essays, we mm. didn't know what the themes would be. But then the themes became very apparent after all of the authors had submitted the essays. So the way we've divided the themes are th- um, are resilience. So mm-hmm. of course, a lot of these women have stories of, of resilience, of exile, where some of these women have left the countries that they covered. Um, Crossfire is one of my favorites because it's it essentially. It's a double entendre where it's it's about women covering war who come from both the East and the West, from the Arab world and from the Western world. I hate to use those terms. But um, so essentially they've got one foot in the Arab world and one foot in the West. And that's a product of uh, displacement and, and emigration and, um, and of warfare where people have to flee the regions that they're from and end up living sort of having two two identities I personally um, relate to that myself and um, and transition so that would be people writing about countries in transition or people writing about um, the, the media industry itself mm-hmm. in transition so uh, we were able to using those themes to really pre- present a cohesive I think um, book where you're getting a range of experiences but each section really stands alone and all of the essays bounce off beautifully from one another and I'm actually very proud of that aspect of the book for sure. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I was actually um, listening to another podcast in this series and something that they briefly touched on that I am was really curious to hear your take on because I think this is the time that you're at now when you've kind of submitted the book to the publishers and kind of it's almost too late to change anything and you're just waiting for it to be published is incredibly nerve-wracking because the spectre that you're facing is feedback um, from a very broad audience, you know, one of the biggest audiences you can ever speak to and where you have, you're suddenly very vulnerable because you've got very little control. And, you know, this... Even even with colour, people have very strongly held opinions and people are sort of very hawk-eyed and, and passionate in, in a lovely way. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm really interested to hear your take on the expectations of the reception that your book is going to, um, to get and if you have any kind of concerns or fears or expectations about the feedback that you're going to receive once it's, once it's out in the world. Yeah, I think every author, editor, journalist, is always thinking about feedback and how people will respond to the work. Uh, I love that you mentioned passion earlier. I think that passion is really important when it comes to any project, that you have a belief in this idea Mm. and that you stand by it. And and I do. And I also think that the timing of the book is kind of on our side in a way, in the sense that, you know, this is a kind of a really charged environment where you've got, you know, rise of populism in Europe and you've got Donald Trump and you've got even ISIS you've you've got such an intense backdrop where it's even more urgent to have a book like this and even more urgent to have voices like these to kind of diminish or or to to break stereotypes and to change people's predominant attitudes of like what an Arab woman is today. So I feel very confident in the the message of the book and in the importance of amplifying the voices of women generally. So I feel like it's it's a strong message and 
I'm hoping that the feedback will be good, taking those things into consideration. I do, you know, I did have certain worries that, you know, in presenting the the voices of these Arab women and the importance of these voices, that in some ways people might think, okay, we're diminishing, we're, we're saying, okay, these are the voices that people should be reading and therefore diminishing the work of others in the region, mm. which is something that is is not, that's not what, what I'm trying to do or what we're trying to do. It's just to present a, a, a sort of more um, inclusive um selection of voices covering the region. Um, I think that that would have been my main concern. But I'm not I'm not worried about of course I'm nervous. It's almost like having a baby and, and mm. you know, suddenly letting it go out into the world and seeing how people will respond to it and it takes on a life of its own. So yes, I'm definitely nervous but I'm also confident and I believe in the project. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place. In conversation today is writer Cassia St. Clair and journalist Zara Hunkier. How about you? How did you feel about the feedback? <laughs> you're so much braver than I am. I, you know, you know, your subject is a is a lot more. It was, you know, it seems to be a lot more of a charged one, and the criticism and opinion that you're laying yourself open to um, with this subject seems like it's a, a lot more, um, you know, risky in a way um, yeah. than than mine, which is all historical. So, well, for the most part, it was historical, and so there are fewer people to offend, and it's less highly charged in many ways um, but it's something I'm, I'm a total scaredy cat and it's something that I really agonized about you know one of the premises of my book about color was that colors are cultural creations and uh, and and therefore they're kind of elastic and they change over time and, and and all this kind of stuff and then I found myself because of the design of the book I found myself in the ridiculous position of then having written all that of having to decide on the right shade of ultramarine for the ultramarine sure. page and mauve yeah. for the mauve page and all the rest of it <laughs> and uh, it took days I was there with the the designer of the book and I was really I had sleepless nights now it yeah. sounds completely stupid and particularly talking to, to you and your bravery it makes me feel even worse <laughs> but I had sleepless nights I was like oh my goodness someone's yeah. gonna come at me because <laughs> I've chosen this day shade of magenta <laughs> actually it's funny that you say that because I can really relate in a way um, in the sense that you know I agonize over the selection of contributors mm. which is very similar because you want to I mean in a way you're you with, with the secret lives of color you're telling the stories of different colors so mm. it's almost like an anthology in a way as well uh where you very want, kind of you to say <laughs> yeah well you you really want to be you know representing the whole spectrum right yeah. in some way and I wanted to do that with with the book and in a way it's like am I you know do I have too many Lebanese women on board mm. you know do I not have enough Palestinians or Yemenis or you know am I co- am, you know are, are we covering the right number of conflicts but it's it's almost like you have to let go at some point because this is what you're working with and mm. you know I can't have a hundred contributors on board I would have loved to have way more women, Arab women journalists on board. There are plenty of them out there doing brilliant work. So I definitely agonized over the sort of, am I am mm. I presenting the right number of women or am I choosing the right women? And But, you know, you just have to let go. I'm sure you can. <laughs> yes. You can relate. <laughs> you also have to accept that not everyone is going to love what you do. After um, the publication of uh, The Golden Thread, I had a very angry email um, from a reader um, because I hadn't mentioned felt enough um, mm-hmm. and I'd focused too much on on woven um, textiles and 
I had to put my hands up and say, yep, there, there isn't an awful lot of felt in there. <laughs> I'm very sorry, but that's those pretty biased of you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, those weren't the, that, that wasn't the story that I decided to tell, you know, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's, uh, there's an audience for, for a book about felt, but that wasn't the book that, yeah. I, that I wrote. So, you know, especially when you're selecting, there's, you know, selection is personal and there's always going to be people who can pick holes in your selection. Sure. But, you know, there are, there are plenty of other book opportunities should someone else have a better idea than than yours. So after you've had these two books that have come out and they've just done remarkably well, they've smashed it, as we all know. How do you feel? I mean, taking all of the things that you've learned from those two books, do you feel like there are lessons that you're now going to apply to the third book, at least in terms of how you're going to you know, approach the writing process mm. or how you're going to um, respond to feedback and things like that? Any yeah, lessons? Yeah, so um, I was very lucky um in a way that I sort of I wrote the first book while I was working full-time and then before the first book had even come out I'd already signed a book deal for my second book so writing my second book was 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 great because I didn't have um it sounds stupid but I, I it didn't I didn't have suffered too much from kind of second album um syndrome in a way because everything had kind of been locked down before the first book even came out so that was great I didn't have that kind of weight of expectations um but also I think you know I made um, a commitment I, I quit um, a full-time job in order to write books full-time and that kind of brings with it a sort of um you know, it, it's very nice to have made that decision and, and that life choice, but also it makes me think about how I want my life to look and, and what's sustainable and what isn't. Mm. And particularly the way that I wrote my first book uh, was just not a sustainable way to work. I was working in a full-time job, and so in order to write the book in the time that I had, I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning, write until sort of in my pyjamas <laughs> uh, with a mug of coffee until about seven thirty-eight, have a shower, go to work, come back in the evening... And uh, then work for a few more hours and then go to bed. And I did get some, I, I got six weeks off work. Um, but the entire book had to be written, you know, in, in under six months. Um, so I didn't have an awful lot of time. And by the end, I was, you know, I was just on my knees. I was so exhausted mm -hmm. and I realised, I, I, you know, I, that wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. Um, so I handed the book in and the book was handed on the Monday. The Friday, the previous Friday had been my final day at my full-time job. And um, suddenly I was like, what am I going to do now? And so I spent, I think, probably about a month, which was the first month when I should have been writing my new book, I spent it pretty much in my pyjamas watching episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> because, Excellent choice. because I was just so exhausted <laughs> yeah. and, and, and needed a break. And I think that is something that I have learned. I've learned to be a lot kinder to myself and learned that some days you're just not in a writing frame of mind. You might be more of in a research frame of mind or you might need to do something a bit lighter or you might need to just to step away from the book. So I'm lucky. I write, you know, writing books is what I do for most of my time, but I also do other things. So I write film reviews, which I love doing, um, and then write sort of other articles as well. So um, giving myself kind of a bit of a you know, a, a bit of an easier time is, is definitely a lesson that I've learned. I think the other things that I'd really like to sort of take into my next book, you know, hopefully I'm going to have a long writing career ahead of me and, you know, and I've got a few more books um, in me. And I think 
that means that I've got to be um, brave and step outside my comfort zone, which I think I did, you know, I did make a transition between the first and second book. The first book sort of told 75 different quite short stories. You know, the shortest was probably about 500 words. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they went up to maybe 2,000 um, words. And then the um, second book just told 13 different stories. So the chapters were much longer, mm-hmm. um, you know, probably around the 8,000, 9,000, you know, word mark. Um, but for the next book, what I have in mind is sort of one narrative history um, and that brings with it, you know, writing to different lengths is, is, is quite difficult. I, mm-hmm. I particularly tend to um, be quite a dense writer, I think, because I came from magazines and particularly, you know, for the first couple of um, years that I was writing, I was writing sort of, you know, probably 250 word length, um, which means that every word has to, you know, really sort of pull its weight which is good when you're writing captions but when you're writing a long book means that you know your poor readers probably (laughs) just needs a bit of a break uh so I think um writing to different lengths and and getting that skill is something that I really want to to work at as well as in my own work practices just being a bit kinder to myself um and not getting up at five o'clock in the morning ever again if I can avoid it sounds like a good plan (laughs) what about feedback how do you feel about do you feel like you've changed in how you've responded to it I wish I could say I I'm getting better I think um I in some ways I think I'm quite relaxed about some aspects of, of of feedback so um when I've spoken to other writers they've been very surprised that I've been happy for people to read chapters of my book you know that I'm sort of happy to send them off you know when I finish writing them before I finish the whole book and I'm happy for you know my husband um reads them after I've written each one and and gives me feedback and um you know I'm very happy to send them off to the editor I, I I'm not fussy about that at all but I also take it very personally because this is all I do now yeah I think it was a bit easier maybe when I was working a full-time job because I had sort of other sources of you know recognition um, but now this is sort of all I do. You know, if someone if someone writes a mean tweet spotting out a typo on page 68, I go into like, uh, t- you know, it feels dreadful. Have you gotten a so, mean tweet for a typo? Oh, yeah, oh, I, I said, oh, really, it's, it's worse than a typo. I said someone's, um, I, I got confused between um, someone's mother and someone's wife. Uh, oh. Yeah, uh, which... It, on on one page in, in in my new book, and I am mortified. And there's nothing I can do. That you know, the copies yeah. are on the shelves. Yeah. Um, I hope that that doesn't undermine. I hope that one fact in that one line doesn't undermine people's experience of reading the book. But then I also know that I it's really it. important to get those things right. And once you lose the faith of your reader then it's hard to regain that in the course of the book. You know, if, if, you, know you need to be careful about those things. Um, so I think I take feedback very much to heart. I really agonise about it. And I'm, I'm sort of sitting at my desk, you know, terrified that I'm going to make a mistake. And I think that's both a good thing because it makes you really care, but also a bad thing in that you have to, you know, just, ha- as, just as you have to let anything go, um, you have to let go of the fact that you are going to make a mistake. You know, it's very hard to submit a completely um, 
clean manuscript, no matter how many times you read over it, no matter how many times, no matter how many passes it goes through um, editors and fact checkers and all the rest of it, there's probably going to be a mistake somewhere in there, very unfortunately, and you have to live with that, um, which with a magazine or a newspaper, you know, it doesn't matter as much with a book. Oof, you know, it's an awful lot of copies are out there on shelves. Yeah. That's an awful lot of replications of that mistake that you yeah. you definitely should have caught. Um, so, so yeah, I think I'm both good and bad uh, with feedback. How about you? Um, well, I'm yet to see. <laughs> <laughs> I've generally, um, I, as you say, I take it to heart as well, and I do agonise, and I and I am, you know, worried about having let things slip. But you told me that at one point, and I think that's great advice. You just said it now is that you have to let go at some mm. point. And I think, as a writer, as an editor, as as a journalist, that that's something important because you just have to learn from mistakes and and just be more diligent next time around, if it's possible mm. to be more more diligent. I'm sure you're incredibly diligent, <laughs> or just acknowledge that sometimes mm. we make mistakes. You know? Yeah, I think next time something that I'm definitely going to do, um, you know, I, I've been very lucky. I've, I've come from um, working um, at a publication where we had um, fact checkers that would mm. read every single word. And that isn't something that happened um, with the book. You, you know, you do have kind of sort of that level of scrutiny, but possibly not enough. And I feel like for the next book um, that I write, if I possibly can, I'm going to um pay for a fact checker out of my own um, money just to make sure that it gets that extra pass um, because I, I really want to have that extra layer of security um, sure. at the final editing stage. I just think the more eyes you can get on something, the better. I definitely found that interesting in the with books is that they don't, you know, publishing yeah. houses don't have fact checkers. Yes. <laughs> I, I was surprised by that. And, Very surprised. Yeah. Yep. So at what stage of the writing process are you at? With the next work? Yes. Uh, I'm at the pitch stage. Okay. So the pitch, so everyone, everyone listening has to keep their fingers crossed for me because the pitch is, is um, with with publishers. It's with people who might uh, shepherd it uh, into its final book form over the next few years. Uh, but I'm just doing the research. So we're both kind of you're kind of at the end of one stage and the beginning of it appearing on shelves. I and I am very hopefully, fingers crossed, at the beginning of a whole new project, uh, which is very exciting, but yeah. also nerve-wracking. Well, if the past is anything to go by with your writing, then things are going to go beautifully well. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I wish you all the best with the publication Thank of you. your book. I can't wait to see it on shelves. Thanks. It's been a great chat. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was writer Cassia St. Clair and journalist Zara Hunkier. This has been Thought Starters, recorded in the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a Deanna Co. project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded and edited by Sean Cook. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com or on Twitter or Instagram with the handle at whitecityplace or shoot us an email at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes. Give us a rating, write us a comment. It really helps.